Hey, this is Alon Rubin, and I'm Ben's guest on Big Fat Five. What is up? Welcome back to Big Fat Five, a podcast financially supported by Big Fat Snare Drum. This week's guest, as you just heard, is Mr. Elon Rubin. I guarantee you know who he is, but if you don't, he's currently the drummer for the bands Nine Inch Nails and Angels and Airwaves, but he's played drums for Paramore, M83, Beck, Fantagram, and many more. He's also the co-owner of Q Drum Co., and he's just one of the best living drummers on the planet today. You just believe everything he plays, and he's also a prolific solo artist with releases under his own name, Elon Rubin, and The New Regime, where with both those projects, he writes and records everything himself. He's a madman. And yeah, we get into the top five records that shaped him into the player he is today, but we do start off with a few questions that Elon said were pretty good. So cheers, y'all. I was telling you before we started recording I mean it always comes down to a few key things for me you know and anybody who knows about me or has read or watched the interview it always comes back to Bonham, Stuart Copeland, Joe Morello, Buddy Rich whatever it may be but I do want to say that I've always been the, the type of person to learn from numerous sources like you know growing up I would be that kid that would get one of the VHS tapes at the drum section guitar center. That would be the modern drummer festival or whatever. And I would learn from all these things. But when I get to a level, a level of obsession where I have to devour an entire back catalog, these are the drummers in the bands that have brought that out in me. That's why it always comes back to that. Now, I don't want people to think that I've only ever listened to Bonham and Stuart <laughs> playing drums because it's it's been far more than that. But the thing, they're the the people, they're amongst the the handful of people that I'm always coming back for, for more. Well, this is, I mean, speaking of influences and then how you utilize those, a, a lot of my listeners struggle with finding their own voice behind the instrument. So, how do you go about using your influences without just imitating? and stealing from them because you've been very fairly outspoken about, you know, bands that just regurgitate the past and how that's not <laughs> that cool. So, uh, yeah. How do you go about making it your own, but also very accepting their influence? It's a very good question. And everybody learns from somewhere. Everything has to come from somewhere, but I guess the intent being, copying and leaving it there or learning it and seeing what else you can do with it is really the key and if you'll notice once we get into talking about the songs i did some album stuff and i did 
live albums as well. And I think that is kind of a lost art form because bands always used to have some kind of live release and bands back then, you know, let's say back then, I sound like an old man, but <laughs> I'm with you, day, man. Long before I was born, the, the live rendition of the material was very different. Whereas over the last 15, 20 years or so, live shows have become more of trying to sound identical to an album. Now, these are the, these philosophies have, have gone back a long time, whether you want to be a different thing live or whether you want to recreate the album on stage. But I think it was more popular for the, the stage show to be something different. So when you are familiar with the drumming or the playing of any instrument on its studio recording, and then you hear what that very same person who you've been studying did live, you then see the evolution of that same style and perhaps those same parts. And that makes you think, oh, well, if this is what he did on the album, but then he did that live, maybe I can do this to that. And if you keep following that train of thought, you then end up with something that is different from that very first thing that you learned. And I think that's really important. I mean, I was encouraged from the very beginning by my dad to, to jam and improvise. And when it comes to jamming and improvising, it's a matter of making stuff up on the spot, but you have to start from somewhere. So when you get an idea and you're thinking about how to turn it around or invert it or use it in a different place in the bar, whatever it may be, you're opening yourself to the potential of said idea. And I think that's what's most important. Now, it's far easier to take a fill or take a guitar lick or whatever it may be and get away with making it your own because everybody plays differently. I mean, talking about Led Zeppelin, there are things that you know Jimmy Page got from B.B. King and they could be the exact same notes, but they don't sound the same because they mm -hmm. play guitar incredibly differently. And that, I draw the line there when you try to do a song that sounds exactly like somebody and it's just like, okay, there's 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 nothing going on here that needs to be heard because it was already done better to begin with. <laughs> yeah. And that's, you know, talking about what you we mentioned in, in terms of my distaste for poorly rehashing what was once or what is already perfect. You've been quoted saying so many things are ruined by a lack of taste. Can you talk about how one develops, or how you developed taste? Because obviously you can get technically amazing at the instrument by being in the practice room, but how do you develop taste as a drummer? Ooh, that is a very good question. Uh, two for two here, okay. So, <laughs> okay, off the top of my head, I think it's very important to listen to yourself, whether it be literally a recording or watching a video. And I'm, I'm not saying that's something I have ever done religiously or really enjoyed doing to begin with, but there is a difference of how you feel in the moment and then replaying it and going like, oh, that's not exactly what I thought I was doing or that's not how I felt or how it, how, how it was in my mind as I was doing it. But while I haven't necessarily done that much over the years obviously i've done it and um you do get a different perspective of yourself but i think going back to what i was talking about with hearing a 
an album version of a song and hearing a, a live rendition of that same song. The tempos will be different. The adrenaline's pumping. You can listen to some of your favorite guys overplaying or playing too fast. I mean, these are all subjective opinions, of course, but you can hear differences in other people's playing, which means you'll, of course, be able to hear the differences in your playing after the fact. And there is something to be said about experience and time. The more you play, the more you do something, you will find things becoming less interesting to you over time, and you will find things becoming more interesting over time. And I think as it happens with every single musician, they want to start learning how to play things fast. They want to learn impressive things, they, the showboaty things. I think, especially with guitar players, it's like all that stuff that people have learned or all the, the fills, all of that was learned in the sort of primary stages of learning the instrument. And then once you kind of get that under your belt, you think, okay, but what am I actually going to use that? And then you start realizing what becomes more useful. So. I'm, I'm reminded of a, a cartoon or a meme of sorts where it's like you have your first drum set, your second drum set, which is huge, and then your last drum set, and it's a tiny little four piece. And that's a, it's a very accurate representation of not just the equipment itself, but where your mind is at as you are learning and developing, and then, of course, where you end up. So I think time is a huge part of that. You know, there are people who say, oh, you know, I never liked that band, but now I like them. Or I didn't think much of his drumming or much of his bass playing, but now I really enjoy what he brought to the table. And that comes with time and experience. But I do think listening to as many versions of something that you like, and of course, really analyzing yourself after the fact can all contribute to developing so-called taste. All right, so this is, uh, I have a few questions from Instagram. This is, this is a fun one. So at JD Youngblood underscore asked, in regards to your drumming, are there any habits that you want to break? Habits that I want to break. That is a, that's a good question. <laughs> yeah. um, I suppose so, but it's a little difficult coming up with a specific, not because I don't have said habits, but... For example, when I'm playing live with whichever band it may be, I'm playing that material and I'm put into that headspace. I play differently with Nine Inch Nails the way I do Angels and Airwaves. And I play completely differently when I'm just in a room by myself. But when I'm in the room by myself and I just sit down to play, I always kind of do the same heavy slash funky mid-tempo beat. And it's like, I always play that. Why do I always play that? <laughs> but I suppose it's a it's a comfortable thing where you're kind of just becoming acclimated and, and sinking into the groove. Now, that's not necessarily a bad habit per se, but sometimes irritates me. And it's like, oh, I'm going to play. And it's like, I just played the same thing that I played last time I sat down and I was in this position. But I suppose rather than breaking habits, because... I can't think of anything that is, say, a bad habit that irritates me. I'm sure I have, you know, textbook bad habits, but they don't really affect what I'm doing negatively. Yeah. I do realize that it took me this uh, over two decades to realize that when I do fast doubles on the bass drum, that I do have this kind of like heel toe thing going on that I never, ever realized because I always thought, okay, I'm a. I'm a heel up 
player. Yeah. But if you want those notes to really project and you have to lay into the pedal, I realize that I kind of throw my whole foot into it. But then when you really think about it, it is it is more of a heel-toe thing. So nice to realize that after 20-plus years. But at the same time, I'm like, well, wait a second. What if I just did heel up purely and, and, and saw what it was like to, to play that way? So it's almost like breaking habits for the sake of developing something else, but nothing that really irritates me. Well, that's why you're Elon Rubin. So um, <laughs> I said it. You didn't have to. Um, but uh, so you've worked with a lot of artists. This is from uh, Jay Taylor at Jay Taylor underscore music seven. You've worked with a lot of artists, amazing artists. I'll add that um, with all different styles. So what draws you to work on a project when you're called? So what's your criteria? Mm -hmm. Well, availability is a big one, I have to yeah. say. But once you go through that initial meeting or that first time playing, whatever it may be, people being good people is very important. And the further down the line that I go, the more important that becomes because... Whereas before it was a matter of, I need to find that, that next step in my career. I need to keep moving forward. Mm -hmm. You're willing to take a bit more shit earlier on. And then as time progresses, you realize the things that are more important than they used to be. And not that I didn't care about the caliber of people before, but like I said, whereas in my teens, I was willing to play with people who to this point in my life, I can't stand. I wouldn't do that now. Yeah, I can't stand this person. I'm not going to go on tour with them. That's awful. So that is definitely important. And you really know very, very quickly. I mean, the, the things that I've played are all very different from one another. But I do get along with everyone who I'm actually in bands with. So I've been fortunate enough to have a lot going on and in a way that the schedule allows it to actually work. I haven't had a lot of conflicts, which is something, is something I'm always worried about, but I've been able to dodge those bullets, so to speak. So hopefully that answers the question. It did. This is a really quick one, but I did want to get it in because I'm, I'm assuming this person really wants to know. So at underscore Alexander underscore Robert says, do you remember what snare you used on the Paramore record? I don't recall, only because there were so many snare drums. So, with that album, a good friend, Mike Fasano, and he is a fantastic drum tech who's done probably, I mean, I can't even give a percentage, but I'm assuming a, a large amount of stuff that you've probably discussed on this podcast. He's been mm -hmm. a studio tech for ages, and he just does a great job. And his knowledge and literal inventory of drums is seemingly endless so whatever it may be he shows up with a couple of drum sets that will work for the project but then he also shows up with a a trunk full of uh what might be 14 to 16 snare drums or something like that jesus and that becomes a conversation between producer and engineer so for the paramore album Justin Mel Johnson was producing it. Carlos Siligarza was engineering it. And obviously, they had been involved with the, the pre-production for a while. I went in sort of like the last week of pre-production to 
get in in touch with everything for the sessions but they'd obviously been very familiar with the material for much longer than I have and knew what they wanted to hear so hey we're looking for something a little more modern here and a snare that sounds very cracky but still has a papery quality to it you know how its lingo goes mm -hmm. and then Fasano translates that into I have this black beauty with this kind of head and that kind of those kinds of wires and I think I can get that out and then he sets that up we play it and Justin in the control room says that's what I'm looking for and that's how that whole process goes so mm. the the drum set was a Craviato I know that for sure and mm. the variety of snare drums oh there is a definitely a black beauty in there a superphonic I'm sure he has this really ugly green Aot snare drum, but it sounds great. It has a super thick wood hoop on it, or wood hoops, and there's so many things that I couldn't possibly remember all of. But mm -hmm. but Fasano has an incredible drum collection. That's like that's all I can say. All right. Yeah. Uh, too much to remember. And the same goes for cymbals. He shows up with bags of cymbals. Of course stacks of different types of heads and like i said he translates the the lingo of what the producer's looking for and he makes it happen and then mm -hmm. all i have to do is just play the drums <laughs> well you do that well so thank you hey y'all i wanted to <laughs> i can't say i wanted to talk to you about a drum i've recently received from preston at vessel drum co it's an ocean patinaed 14 by five and a half snare drum, and it's incredible. It's got a 1.5 millimeter shell, brass shell, with 10 lugs, chrome over brass, triple flange hoops, a trick uh, three position strainer, 42 strand wires. It's lovely, it's loud, and it cuts and records as beautiful as a piece of butter cake. And, and Preston, actually, this is why it's called the Ocean Patina, is he covers the shell with seaweed and then drops it in the ocean for a certain period of time. And then it patinas with all these crazy cool designs. And if you all remember, Preston was actually one of the first guests on the podcast. When I first started out, I didn't really know what the Big Fat Five format was going to be or if it was going to be even Big Fat Five at all. But I went to his garage, his, his, you know, where he makes all of his drums. It was really cool. He walked me through the episode is essentially from start to finish what happens with a drum. And it was, it was a really fun episode. It's now archived at bigfatsnaredrum.com just because it doesn't fit the format of Big Fat Five. I want you to get back to the show, but go check it out. This drum is beautiful. And he actually let me use it on an Eve 6 tour. And I didn't keep it and i regretted it ever since then just because i was trying to pinch pennies at the time and i just kept thinking about it and so the opportunity to get it again was presented and it is one of my favorite drums so the ocean patinaed 14 by five and a half snare drum check it out reach out to me go to vessel drum co the instagram's just at vessel drum co and check it out it's amazing it's beautiful sounds great bye um, all right. Well, yeah. Let's just let's just hop into the top five. So, uh, again, yes, the first one is John Bonham. But I do want to come at this from from a perspective of someone who, let's just say, doesn't know a lot about Bonham, doesn't know a lot about Led Zeppelin. Mm -hmm. um, maybe it's a younger listener. But uh, yeah. So talk about where you were when you first heard this song. 
um, your first impressions, who showed it to you, all that stuff. Get to know Elon a little bit more, not just John Bonham. So the album is Houses of the Holy. The release year is 1973. The artist is, of course, Led Zeppelin. Song choice is the song remains the same, and the drummer is John Bonham. So let's just talk about it for a few minutes, and then we'll play a clip of the song. But okay. the floor is yours. Well, oddly enough, I can't tell you exactly. Hey, nice mug. Bonsolium, <laughs> Terry, shout out. <laughs> I can't tell you precisely the first time I heard it. I can tell you the first time I heard Led Zeppelin, and the story at this point goes. <laughs> I started playing drums. My dad, who was a drummer in high school, realized that I had a semblance of rhythm, perhaps even talent, and taught me a couple things. But I remember him specifically saying, if you're going to listen to Led Zeppelin, or if you're going to play drums, you got to listen to this. And he got me, got me Led Zeppelin 1. Sorry, I'm, I'm distorting my own story at this point. But, <laughs> but I, so I remember that very specifically. And of course, a classic opening to an album. And, and for whatever reason, the CDs that were in the house at that time were Led Zeppelin 1, 2, 4, and House is the Holy. Okay, everything else, the, the other half of the catalog was not there. So I went through all of those, and there was some, just something about House is the Holy I can say now or for a long time now i have determined that to be my favorite album of all time if i had one album to take with me somewhere that would be it and i love the sound of it there's a nice openness to it and i suppose that that album to me sounds like the biggest band on the planet who no longer has anything to prove and all that's left to do is experiment further and the opening of the song remains the same great song but it has this up-tempo sort of galloping quality that to me is synonymous with bonham and you can hear the same thing in achilles last standoff of presence it's just a very specific bonham beat that anytime you play it you think of him and it's one of those things I love to play at the drums as well because it's up-tempo, but it has a bit of swing to it. And like I said, that galloping quality. And it being the opener to my favorite album of all time, it's just something that really sticks with me. And I just love it. I think the drums sound great on it. As I said, there's an openness. I just love the way everything sounds. And there's a... There's an otherworldly quality to that song and the one that follows it, the Rain Song. And I think it's just such a great opening and introduction to that album. And that's, that's what I came up with. All right, here we go. The song remains the same. We'll listen to about maybe a minute and a half of it. Sure. John's bass line's pretty cool in this song, too. Fantastic. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, and they just get out of each other's way too. Because John, yeah. when at the beginning he's doing a little more higher up on the neck, and then when when Paige starts to really do his thing, then he goes down lower, just starts pedaling. It's they really do let each other shine. Exactly, and the in the mix is great, and you can tell there's a lot going on. But as you said beautifully, everyone is out of their way. You can hear the bass beautifully. You can hear the nice chime and jangle of the twelve string stuff going on. It's all anchored by Bonham. But it's working together as a whole to to make this this otherworldly thing. I know I've said that numerous times <laughs> you already. You can say it, man. But yeah, if say you it wouldn't again. mind, if you wouldn't mind, pick up where you left off because the tempo changes and the sound of the drums is just beautiful, especially in the section where they drop out and Bonham does this fill. You can just hear how beautifully each of his toms are tuned. It's it's great. Sure, I'll fade it back in like a like a rock back star. In. Beautiful job. All of this in the context of one song it's gonna it's gonna pick up we won't spoil that for anybody who's never heard of this before but <laughs> I will say that that drum tuning is I don't think I've ever thought of drum tuning in the drum sound being as synonymous with a drummer as Bonham you can have certain albums by other bands where they are iconic and they sound great and people go oh you got to listen to this album but every Led Zeppelin album sounds different they all sound like Bonham you could hear the worst bootleg of whatever recorder somebody was holding back in the day and it still sounds like him playing mm -hmm. and that is attributed to of course his technique but he tuned his drum so well and I love that in that fill you're literally just hearing the drum set by itself nothing fancy is going on but it's just beautiful. Yeah, I uh, will let you have that. That's uh, <laughs> I won't try. To, a lot of times, I like I'll edit this and I try and add on to what the guest said. I just that was said well enough, and I will let that sit. So um, thank you. But feel free yeah. to say whatever you want. You know, I'm not going to argue with you. you no, I just really, I just I repeat poorly what the guest said, and I'm like Ben, just go great. Um, so great. Uh, all right. So number two, uh, the album is. This is where it gets confusing for people. So the album is song. The song remains the same, even though that's the song we just heard. I didn't even think about that when I did it. <laughs> no, it's uh, uh, so yeah. The release year is '76. The artist is still Led Zeppelin. Song choice is Celebration Day, which is funny. I think Celebration Day is the name of their other live record from like '07, right? It's confusing stuff. So I'll <laughs> I'll clear this up the best I can. So Please as do. you said, the song remains the same. The song is the opener to Houses of the Holy. Yes. Okay, that was in 73. Now, the song remains the same. The concert was filmed on the Houses of the Holy tour, mm. but it came out three years later in 76 because they had to film extra stuff. They had to do all their bizarre fantasy sequences and all, you know, whatnot. The, the, yeah. the, the oddities that have made a, a classic, classic rock film. Mm -hmm. And 
the song that I've mentioned on this one is Celebration Day, which is a song off of Led Zeppelin 3, but is also the name of the DVD that was the O2 concert that they did in 07, which I was at, I'm very proud to say. Whoa. Wow. I was there. I was there. It, was a, it was a mind-bending experience for me. I One of the only times I've ever been choked up in my life was, was there. But yes, so they beautifully recycle their titles for whatever project works. Sufficient. Yeah. And what's great about Celebration Day, the song, off of the song remains the same, the live album, is that it has a completely different energy to the version on Led Zeppelin 3. It's got a lot more energy. It's a lot more aggressive. It's some of uh, Paige's best playing, I think. But really what this one is about to me is... I love that feel, and because they play it a bit faster, it still kind of has that galloping quality you hear John Paul Jones picking up a lot of the offbeats on, on the bass. So the rhythm section, which Bonham and John Paul Jones, I mean, I don't, I don't really think it gets better than that. At yeah. least that's, you know, you can tell by the smile on my face. But <laughs> it's a great locking of those two playing. Drums sound great, of course, and you can just hear them playing off of each other a lot. And while they may go their own way for a for a bar or two, they come back for these accents, and it's a beautiful piece of work by them. So there you have it. All right, here's Celebration Day. If I knew you were going to play the stuff on the show, I probably would have picked something that started with drums, so I'm sorry. Drummers need to hear non-drums. Healthy. Jones and Bonham do similar rhythmic fills on their respective instruments. Ridiculous. We're gonna go into a guitar solo, same progression as the chorus, but listen to the bass and drums. Oh yeah. Right here. Like this. You can't fake that. Nope. And you can fade out if you'd like. 
Although the ending of this is one of my favorite page moments. I will say that for somebody who has no idea about Bonham or the song remains the same, but knows what Vista lights are probably the concert that made them famous. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I can't think of a, a bigger, better representation of new acrylic drums than the drummer of Led Zeppelin using them at the height of their fame. And it's, you know, now it's, it's a part of that concert. So you think of him and Vista lights often come to mind. Do you own any orange Vista lights? Just I like have, I do. I do want some honestly, but I have a huge problem with Anytime something gets reissued as a bottom this or bottom that, it's never right. And I'm not yeah. saying the drums aren't good, but they're not period correct, I guess you can say. And if yeah. I were to get something that was meant to be a replica, I wish they did a better job of that. All right. Be honest, you know. There you go. No. And they're hard to find because... For those of you who don't know, Bonham played very big drums. So to find a 26, 14, 16, 18, especially original, is near impossible. I've been on a hunt for a green sparkle version for what seems like half my life at least. Mm -hmm. They are unicorns of the drum world. They are very rare, and I have had no luck yet. And then you find things like rewraps and whatnot. And not only that, I have had an acrylic drum set. Now, it wasn't a Ludwig. But they can break, which is obviously worrisome. So yes. I, I broke a bass drum, and it was it was heartbreaking. But what can you do? Did he tune his own drums for like those kind of shows, or did he have a, a drum tech as a, as a through line through the career? No, he tuned his drums all the way till about '77, if I'm not mistaken. You can mm. see on YouTube. There's a fine man by the name of Jeff Oakletree. He joined for just the '77 tour of the U.S. And other than that, it was all bottom. That's fact, awesome. There's a funny story with uh, the Led Zeppelin manager, Peter Grant, seeing this guy on stage playing with Bonham's drums. And he supposedly aggressively went up to him and said, what are you doing? Who are you? Why are you touching his drums? And he said, well, I'm, I'm the drum tech. I'm tuning his drums. He's like, no, no, no. John Bonham tunes his own drums. So it's really funny where you think of now. It's like the last thing the drummer in a big band is going to do is go tune his own drums. <laughs> Well, it means he gave a shit, dude. I mean, that's exactly. awesome. Exactly. Not that there's anything wrong with tuning your own drums. I just trust others to do it, and I'm, <laughs> I'm happy to give up the reins there. Um, all right, so number three, the album is uh, Zenyatta Mandata, and the uh, release year is 1980. Uh, the artist is The Police. Song choice is Driven to Tears, and Mr. Stewie Copeland. So mm -hmm. uh, take it away. Okay, so I got into The Police around the sixth grade however you however old you are at the sixth grade whether it's 11 12 i don't really know mm -hmm. but this one in particular comes to mind because it is a police classic it's the second song on the third album zinyata mandata i don't know why they decided to name their first three albums such odd titles but hey if you remember them they're great doesn't matter but this one starts with drums, and it will tie into my next choice on the, the live album with the police stuff. But it's a great representation of, I think, Stuart Copeland's style in the, the sense of his use of hi-hats, his syncopation, and 
I would just say it's a classic drum intro because he counts in the song with a snare drum, which is awesome, okay? But then the way he uses his fills, you really get an idea as to where he kind of saw the pocket and how he would color outside the lines rhythmically. And I just think it's very representative of his style as a drummer. And same with the type of drums he used. I don't mean the brand, although they were Tama, but you can hear immediately, practically, once leading into verse one, you could hear he's got more than one tom up there. <laughs> and it's just, uh, it's very representative of his style. And it's one that sticks out to me as one of my, my favorites. All right, take it away, Stuart. Now it's his turn. Now he's on the bell. Mm -hmm. The bell is synonymous with Stuart Copeland. And he's not clinging to a, a pattern on the bell. He's just yeah. going. Which I'm sure Sting loved. <laughs> Octobombs. Mm. see that pause before going into that it's like obviously Stuart is some could say he's overplaying but he also has taste at the same yes. time I just picture this song live 20 BPM faster oh, yeah adrenaline pumping <laughs> mm. and the hole that's left there kind of accent on that three if you want to count it that way the yeah. reggae-ish stands out to me is a quintessential Copeland track and I can't get enough of it. It's, it's great. And what I love about this album is for whatever reason, it has a very distinctive sound, whether you like it or, or not, but I believe it was all mixed in one night. The entire album was mixed in one night and they needed to finish it to go on tour. And that may be the reason why every song just sounds the same. And I mean that in a good way, not songwriting wise. I mean, sonically, mm -hmm. it sounds like this is the sound of the album and that's all there is to it. And I love that. Have you ever met Stuart? I met him once as a kid. I would love to meet him again. Cause I did have a, a bit of a bizarre experience. I was, <laughs> what happened? Well, I was either, it's going to sound bizarre, I know, but I was probably <laughs> 10 or 11 years old, and at the time I was using Paiste cymbals. They were very kind in, in signing such a, a young kid, so I was, of course, very grateful. And my two favorite drummers using Paiste, I've been with Zildjian since I was 16 now, but, but yes, my, my two favorites using Paiste. So I went to the NAMM show before I knew what a horrible thing it was <laughs> and yeah. people say well that sounds great it's a whole convention center filled with instruments it's like yeah think about that mm -hmm. it's awful and there's nothing worse than going to a cymbal booth 
at a convention center with everybody feeling like they need to test out all the symbols at the same time. It's the worst. And it's a necessary evil, but I feel like when I have a tour booked at that time, I'm dodging <laughs> a four-day bullet that just makes me happy. Because as a, as a co-owner in Q Drumco, I'm, I feel obligated to put in my time, and I do, but when I'm not, when I can't, there's no guilt to be felt. Yep. Anyway, so Peisty knew what a huge Stuart Culpin fan was. I mean, I literally had a roto sound, and for those of you who don't know, it's this thick cymbal disc. I mean, it's thick, it's it's heavy, but it, it it's on a sort of like a U-shaped stand, and it's suspended from the middle. Okay. And hit it, and it spins around really, really quickly. It's a have you have you seen one of these before? No. Okay, if you watch the Synchronicity concert, which is what we're going to be listening to after this, it's not in Message in a Bottle, but he uses it in a couple of songs. Uh, Walking in Your Footsteps is one in particular, and you'll see him smack this thing, and it spins, and I was just enamored by it. I'm like, what is that? I have to have one. Don't know why, but I got one. Yeah. And that's obviously my stroke open obsession, especially at that young age. But they're like, well, you know, he's going to be here if you'd like to meet him. And I was like, of course I'd like to meet him. And can't blame him for this. He was really late. He was like 45 minutes late or an hour late and whatever. He showed up. I didn't care. But I was introduced. And they're like, hey, Stuart, this is one of our young artists, if not our youngest artists. And he's a really big fan. He'd like to meet you. And for anybody who's seen... A Stuart Copeland interview, he has a very large personality. Yeah, right? he's very intimidating, yes. And he, I'm sure he's tall, but back then he was really tall to me because I was, <laughs> you know, this big. Yeah. And he just answered in what I now know to be his personality. He's like, oh, is this the kid who's going to be eating my lunch someday? But as a 10-year-old, <laughs> I didn't know what to make of that. I'm like, who's, what about lunch? It, it, what? Yeah. And as a 10 or 11 year old, I was just like, that's not what I was expecting. I mean, I don't know what I was expecting, but maybe like a, hey, nice to meet you. You play drums? Good for you, kid. But it was it was just that remark, and I, I was really taken aback by it. Now, in hindsight, of course, I was like, I totally get it. I understand what he was saying. It's actually potentially complimentary you know i was gonna say that's him talking to you as a peer yeah yeah totally and uh, but at the time i was i was bamboozled for lack of a better term but i would love to meet him again yeah feel like you know as an adult now i could hang have an actual conversation be good yeah well maybe you guys because he does composing maybe you guys can collaborate on a score together i'm putting that out in the universe so plus who wants to talk to a 10 or 11 year old not me at Nam, surrounded by symbols, nonetheless. <laughs> I don't want to talk to anyone at Nam. So, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> all right. So, speaking of, I'm, I will drop the Roto Sound. I will drop a video of that in the show notes. So, after you're done listening, okay. just just click the link, people. But uh, number four, the album is The Police Live! Exclamation point. Release year is 1995. The artist is The Police. The song is Message in a Bottle, and it's. Uh, in parentheses, disc two from 1983. Yes. And the drummer is, of course, Stuart Copeland. So Very important. Why is that important? Yeah. So this Police Live album is an awesome representation of the Police Live because it is two discs from more so the beginning of their career, if not very early. I mean, 79, so they'd been around for a couple of years, maybe two and a half at the most. And then the last tour, the Synchronicity Tour in 83, I believe it ended 
beginning of 84. But you can hear as a band how tight they had become as a unit. And obviously being a three-piece band, all those guys had to carry equal weight, you know? Mm-hmm. And uh, I always say the Police is one of the hardest bands if not impossible to rip off because everybody has to be so unique that when you try to play or sound like either one of those guys, it's, it's not even, it's not even worth trying and Mm -hmm. let alone all three in one band. But I've always loved this album because I specified message in a bottle disc too, because they do play it on both discs. It is off their Mm -hmm. second album, but the version from the synchronicity tour is absolutely flawless they are so tight as a band but coincidentally on this tour and dating back a little bit actually they opened up or they counted in message in a bottle the way they counted in driven to tears so for those of you hearing a song not knowing what it is you might expect them to play driven to tears but in fact he hits those eight flams on the snare and they go into message in a bottle now this is a fine fine example of beautiful and flawless overplaying okay now overplaying sounds as if i'm being insulting and i'm not it is stunningly precise and you can tell it's in the moment playing which is a quality of of stewart's that i love you can tell he's just going probably trying to keep himself entertained and have fun and doing so beautifully so listen to message in a bottle Disc 2 from Police Live Synchronicity Tour. And before the verse even starts, just listen to him having a good time. All right, here we go. (laughs) Burned into my memory. He's earned that. A great example of how much faster this is than the album version. That's such a great energy. Yeah. And considering how fast it is and how tightly they're playing. Without mistaking good hi hat fill here. It's an odd choice, but if somebody said, give me one Stuart Copeland song to listen to, I would pick this one. 
it's a, it's a great song as a piece of music, but how intensely he's playing and how he's just going for it and having a great time. There are so many Copeland-isms in this one song that I I love and it always sticks out to me. I mean, I have those fills burned into my brain. I mean, mm-hmm. oh my goodness, how many times have I listened to it? And it's good. The uh, There's an accompanying video of it, if you'd like to see it. But yeah, I can't get enough of that that recording. And I did tell you that I saw Led Zeppelin at the O2 and O7, but I also saw the police at Dodger Stadium in O7. Quite a quite a year for me in bands I never thought I'd ever see. Jeez. I, I really lucked out that year, I have to say. Did you fly going back to Led Zeppelin, did you fly to London just for that? Or did you happen to be on tour with oh, Well, no, I, I went specifically for it. I mean I, I really, really lucked out in the fact that I was able to I had access to tickets and I was able to take my whole family, which was great. Well, one of my brothers was not able to attend, unfortunately, but it was a family trip to go see Led Zeppelin. And there were 20 million ticket applicants, if I'm not mistaken. So to be able to have somebody say, if you want to go to Led Zeppelin, these are how many tickets you can have. I was like, okay, so I I really lucked out, but yeah. Wow. Well, I want to. I, don't, I want to know how you got that, but that's probably a, a secret family thing on how you got well, those tickets. I, I, but I just a band I was playing with at the time uh, had a big manager, and that manager was managing Jimmy Page at the time. So mm. whoever was on the roster, which were a lot of big bands, were I wouldn't say had a first come first serve, but there was an allotment for the management company per se, mm. and shockingly the band that i was with at the time which shall remain nameless oh you'll have to go research it if you really care that much i think i know yeah a lot of the people didn't want to go which i i was insulted by i'm like you have an opportunity to go (laughs) this and you don't want to go i'm like fine i'm taking your tickets and i went with my family yeah among many reasons why that was the wrong band so yeah (laughs) um quick question maybe i'll cut this out but what are your uh do you have an opinion on on jason's playing and and that 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 concert and how he paid homage to his to his father i think he did a really good job i don't think anybody should sit in that drum throne other than him i mean uh, whether it be because of his playing or out of respect i think it's the only true thing to do and i think he did a great job i i will say that i was you can hear it was cleaned up a little bit but coming out of the middle jam section in Days and Confused when they get back into that last verse. I was watching it and I realized that he did the cue to go into the next riff late. And I was like, my stomach started sinking because I was like, no, this is about to be a train wreck. And it actually was. A bit, I mean, obviously they got, they got back on. Sure. In that moment, I was like, oh my God, no, 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 no. There's just, there's a legendary crossover phil does it four times well they do the they do that riff twice then they do this phil four times and then they go into the riff and be the but it fell apart right there but i was it was like watching a a car crash in slow motion and i was like no do you think he realized it like is it halfway through the phil he's like oh jason (laughs) if i saw it one of them on stage must have been like, well, here we go. Let's see how this yeah. goes. But yeah, that's a great thing about Led Zeppelin. You can hear bootlegs of things. I mean, there's 
there's a phenomenal bootleg on their last tour where none of them know the structure to Kashmir. It's like, <laughs> it's bad. It's so bad. I'll try and look that up. It's so bad. I mean, I'll help you find it because it's funny. And Robert Plant says something like, well, the bootleggers had a good one tonight or something like that because they're just, the song is just wrong. And it, <laughs> it's really funny. But that being the exception to what I'm about to say, it's it's cool to hear when a band is doing different things or kind of just firing away that, you know, the wheels can come off, but they always come back on. There's something about pristine performances that are impressive, but the level of excitement is capped because if you are getting precisely what you expect, how can you really be surprised? 100%. I should call you that. That was good. <laughs> Uh, you can go to me and Elon's merch store. Uh, we have <laughs> mugs as well. Uh, all right, so number five. The album is uh, Dave Brubeck, live at Carnegie Hall, or Ken Carnegie Hall, however you want to pronounce it. Uh, released here is 1963. The artist <laughs> is Dave Brubeck, and the song title is uh, Castilian Drums. And drummer's Joe Morello. So yeah. I couldn't find this on the streaming software that I wanted, but I do have it on YouTube. And uh, the solo starts around 320 for this particular performance, um, which I believe is from that, that album, but yeah, well, I'll, I'll tell you what, first of all, I, I commend you on your pronunciation of your, your, your dual pronunciations of Carnegie and Carnegie. I did not know about Carnegie being one of the, the ways of pronouncing it until I watched this show on the history channel years ago about the, the men who built America Yep, and they referred to Andrew Carnegie and I was like, huh, has everyone been getting it wrong this whole time with Carnegie Hall? But, um, so <clears throat> Joe Morello fantastic drummer i actually got to meet him as a 12 year old when i played the the modern drummer festival he was mm -hmm. there i have part of my my prize for winning the best undiscovered drummer under the age of 18 in the world i mean it sounds like a very lofty title <laughs> but but still an honor nonetheless yeah uh, i have whenever i go to my parents house in my my bedroom is still this like a acrylic trophy that looks kind of like like an office award like employee of the year sort of thing yeah best but hawaiian it, shirt on friday exactly but it's cool 2001 was the year but part of my prize was getting a stack of books and i loved joe morello even then and master studies was one of the books in the pile when i saw him i was like can you please sign this and he was super nice and the way i got into joe morello was what I discussed with you before, I'm not even sure if you were recording at the time or not, but aside from my favorites, who I always mention, given this, what, this is what we're here to do, is talk about my favorites that I already talk about all the time, but <laughs> I do learn a lot whether I decide to, I learn from a lot of places, whether I decide to obsess over them for a lifetime or not. And I was that kid who would go to Guitar Center and see which VHSs looked interesting back there. Like I said, Modern Drummer Festival or whatever. And there was this great one about drum solos. But all the drummers on, on the cover of the VHS were jazz drummers. And to me, jazz and big band, I should specify. Yeah. And to me, there's a, there's a big, there's like a, a dividing line in the term drum solos. It's like you have the guys who just shred on four-piece kits, the jazz drummers and the big band guys, or you think of the drum solo with 
tons of toms and symbols, and it's a sort of theatrical thing that I personally don't care for. Not knocking it, uh, but when I think of drum solos, my inclination is to not really care, <laughs> unless I, I think of great players like Joe Morello or Louis Belson, Buddy Rich, and once again, I'm not knocking the other guys by any means, but there's a different kind of musicality because these guys were playing as an ensemble and they had their, their moment to shine solely as musicians, whereas I think the other more modern adaptation of a drum solo is for entertainment for a kid in the audience who may not be a drummer or a, a refined musician or whatever you, you want to call it. It's just yep. arena rock drum solos. Okay, let's 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 delineate arena rock drum solos and whatever subcategories, metal, whatever whatever. And then you have the big band jazz version of drum solos, which are, in my opinion, some of the most musical examples of what a drummer can be and Buddy Rich, I think, being the pinnacle of that. Now, the reason why I didn't have Buddy Rich as one of my options here on the on the five is because I'm actually not familiar with any specific Buddy Rich tracks, songs that he would play with his big band. I'm with you. <clears throat> but, but I'm very familiar with tons of his solos. And I think they're the greatest example of stream of consciousness precision that nobody has ever been able to come close to, just my opinion. But what I love about Joe Morello is that in the context of the Dave Brubeck Quartet, there was a great thing that would happen, or does happen with jazz music, of which I need to learn a lot more about. But you'd have the piece of music, but then everyone gets their chance to solo and do their thing. It's kind of like they're, they're passing the musical ball around. And what really sticks out about the Dave Brubeck Quartet is they did a lot of stuff in odd time signatures. And the most famous Dave Brubeck song, well, one of them, Take Five, and obviously it's in 5-4, and this track, Castilian Drums, and I love the sound of it, by the way. There's something about 50s and 60s recordings where there's obviously not much that they're, they're, they're doing because the technology wasn't there, but the sound of what is going on with the ensemble was just beautifully captured. Mm -hmm. So the drums just sound great, but they're projecting on a stage that was meant to listen to music. So I love the recording. I love the concert, but Castilian Drums is in 5-4. So it has that same feel the same rhythm as, say, Take 5 from what the drums are doing. But uh, it's darker. Once he takes off into a drum solo, he's still soloing in 5-4, which is very, very difficult to do. Mm -hmm. And you just listen to him go, and he had, he had tremendous technique, but he had a lot of taste. Whereas, and I'm not saying, i got, I got to watch my words here, because mm -hmm. people, are, people are sticklers for trying to go, ah. Believe me. But... Buddy Rich played, and he often played at a... He could do a solo where he's literally playing a 10 out of 10 the whole time, whether it be speed, technicality, whatever he's doing. Morello, I think, was musical in a different way, where he would kind of start and then ramp up to a crescendo and then end. Buddy Rich was just like a, an unstoppable force, a train. And I love them both for, for those different reasons, but... This is a great showcase of Joe Morello's style. Finesse comes to mind when I think of 
Joe Morello, and there could be a, a parallel here. He did the playing on the snare drum without the wires with the, with hands long mm-hmm. before Bonham did. It could have been somewhere where he got it from. I'm not exactly sure. But you can kind of just hear him going through his bag of tricks in this this version of that song. So there you go. And him keeping the, the, the bass line with his left hand. This would be the same beat that's in Egg Five. Fast forward to his solo real quick. Yeah, everyone go listen to the whole record. Uh, <laughs> Good stuff. Now, I know I need to do far more research into the whole world of jazz. But as I said, going back to my introduction being that tape of jazz and big band drum solos, that's something that has stuck with me ever since. And I have numerous Dave Rubeck recordings, and I like the music itself, which is why I, I have it. Mm-hmm. But if somebody, a real purist, purist was to say, oh, you like jazz, what do you, what do you listen to? If I told him that the only recordings I own 
or the vast majority of the recordings I own are Dave Brubeck, they'd probably look down their noses at me. But regardless, it's fantastic music, and the drumming is great. Um, well, I will let you go, because I know I've taken up a lot of your time, but I do want to talk real quick about, so you've been releasing a bunch of music recently under your own name, as opposed to, I, I guess I would say, your usual outlet, which is the New Regime. So mm. um, is the New Regime kind of on just pause while you're doing your own stuff that might stylistically be different, or what's, what's the future look like for your own releases? <clears throat> the future definitely looks like me releasing music under my own name. Now... For those wondering, when I release music under my own name, I write, play, and sing everything. And when I released music under the new regime, I wrote, played, and sang everything. So mm -hmm. what difference is made in the name? None really. It's just far less confusing. But <laughs> I, I didn't realize how confusing it was after, or until I was supporting Angels and Airwaves in 2019. So I was playing... New Regime set, and then I would go play drums for Angels and Airwaves. And, you know, I don't let being in the, the headlining band spoil me, so I would still do the support act thing and go to the merch booth at the end of the night and, and do that. Hell yeah. And the amount of times people either said, you look like the drummer in Angels and Airwaves, or you look like the singer in the New Regime, bummed me out so badly. I'm like, this is a sick joke. So... <laughs> Anyway, that was one thing, but really, I think what put the nail in the coffin was the the pandemic because I put a tremendous amount of work into my last album called Heart, Mind, Body, and Soul that came out in March of 2020. Couldn't have been worse. May have been the thing that started the pandemic. That's how good it was. The world couldn't cope with it. Everyone had to stay home for two and a half years because of how good that album was. But Wow. It's an honor, I man. <laughs> I just didn't... Once I realized, once everybody realized that the pandemic was, you know, the curve was not going to be flattened in two weeks and we were going to get back to life in maybe July. I didn't, want, I didn't want to come out of this whole thing and pick up where I left off. And I thought, okay, it's time to do something else. And as ridiculous as it sounds, putting music out under my own name did feel like a new beginning in ways. And the music is different. But I would say more so because of where I was at or where I am at as a writer. I always change depending on what I find interesting. But the timing of everything and just how I felt really led me to think, okay, let's do the, the best version of starting from scratch that I can and do something I've never done before, which is releasing under my own name. And that's how it's going to go. So that's what I've been doing as of mid no late late 2020 i think was my my first release of talk 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 do you feel that it being under your own name you have less of a pressure for it to be i don't want to say cohesive because i don't think art should be but um you can kind of pull from other parts of your experience as opposed to like this is what the band sounds like as opposed to like no i'm an individual and i can put out whatever i want now is there less of a well you know? Very good question. The answer is no, but the reason why the answer is no is because when I started releasing music as the new regime a long time ago now, I made a very conscious decision of my first 10 song album having 10 very different songs on it. Because I had been in bands and certainly known bands who 
achieved a, a level of popularity and they did one thing. So whenever they, or, or they would do one thing for the course of an album. Mm-hmm. So when they decided to do something else on their next release, you'd, yes, gain a different fan base, but alienate part of that original fan base. And that to me, obviously it's not necessarily the band's fault because everyone changes and evolves, but I've always just found versatility and variety as being something that makes great bands great. And I was very conscious of that from the beginning. So I knew and felt confident that if anybody likes me based on this first album, they're going to expect something different on the next one. And that would be some of the appeal of a, of a fan. Now, back then, which is not entirely long ago, but back then I would get a lot of nonsense from labels or A&R people because everything I did with the exception of the last album was independently released. And people had an issue of not being able to put me in a specific category or genre. Are you rock? Are you alt-rock? Are you electronic? Are you pop? It's just nonsense. Mm -hmm. And that was a turnoff to them for, for whatever reason. And um, I've mentioned this before, you know, Queen is one of the other things I obsess about, but speaking of variety, no band offered greater variety from one track to the next than Queen. And a a shining example of that is having, I mean, with the exception of Bohemian Rhapsody showing variety in a single song. Yeah. I mean, everybody knows that. But if you think of Another One Bites the Dust, and crazy little thing called love living on the same album it's absurd yeah. it's two different bands yeah and not only two different bands there were two different bands that were different to what queen was just before that and i not having been there while they were around was able to take in all of this music and see it for what it was variety and evolution except i didn't have to wait a decade or two to watch it unfold same thing with the beatles I'm sure every time the Beatles came out with an album from, let's say, Help and On, it was like, whoa, look what they just put out. I wonder what they're going to put out next. And it just kept going and going and going. So exciting, yeah. And raising the bar. But I wasn't around in the 60s, so I could literally have a stack of everything from Please Please Me through Abbey Road and go, that's the Beatles. So evolution was something that was just a part of my... Scope is a musician. What's the point of doing an album where 10 songs sound the same? It's stupid. It's pointless. But whereas I dealt with it as a detractor when I was doing it, now, the, the, at least for the last few years or so, the barrier of genre has continued to crumble. And now you have even seemingly bizarre scenarios where somebody could go from pop to the most screamy death metal thing within a verse to a pre-chorus and it's it's like what just happened what did i just hear but it's acceptable and mm-hmm. I'm, I'm glad that it is because genre i think is ridiculous it's like there's two genres in my opinion it's either good or it's bad and you know whatever shades of gray in between what i've just said but what style something is really should be irrelevant. And that's the show. If you're listening on a platform that allows ratings and reviews, do that. 
It helps more people find the show, so it'll get bigger and better, and hopefully I'll have a chance to sell out one day. But you'll be an OG listener that can brag to all your friends. Anyways, why don't you go and check us out at BigFatSnareDrum.com and follow us on all the socials. Just search for Big Fat Snare Drum and you will find us. The show is edited in part using Isotope RX Audio Editor. It's amazing, so go check that out at Isotope.com. And thanks again to Gunnar Olsen for the theme music. Bye!